Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, right, welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. This is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. Um, I'd like to make today or today's podcast uh, the first of a two-parter. And I'd like to talk about NAC, which I talked about last time, and going into glutathione, what it does, why we need it more than ever now. And I'm not just sort of hyping that up because I'm going to get to part two and shazam, I have the stuff for you. No, most people can get whatever I'm going to be talking about anywhere. But I think we need to uh, look at in a positive way, not in a depressing way, you know, why we came to this spot of having to need glutathione and NAC and how it can do such remarkable things in so many different situations. So my objective today is to convince you how valuable NAC and glutathione are and how you can get your hands on them. And uh, next week we'll get into testing and more about how some of the supplements specifically work because they have evolved. And so in one way, this whole mentality of biohacking is something I really don't like much at all. But in another way, there has been this evolution of not just identifying vitamins and so on. That was last century. That was from like 1920s to up into the 60s and beyond. But it was a pretty packed time of saying, wow, there's these nutrients. There's these amines, vitamins. Vital amines is vitamins. And that was the a light that went on. So now we're into the next century, of course. But we're actually learning how to bring in certain supplements that can be absorbable, it can be used by the body where they might not have been used. Glutathione is one of those. In other words, if you found plants and animals, whatever, they were high in glutathione and you ate those things, glutathione in itself is very hard to absorb. So it gets broken down and you get the pieces of glutathione. All right. But there's a lot of other things like that too. So therefore, if one is in great need of reduced glutathione, that's the form you want it in, it really had to be jerry-rigged, if you will. It had to be modified in such a way to make it effective in many ways. We talked about NAC, and NAC, thank goodness it's around, and thank goodness it's as cheap as it is until it's taken off the market should that happen. It's been threatened a number of times. But that this is the key. This is the key that tells us how deficient we have become in the last 40 or 50 years. So important, I'm going to go further with what I did on YouTube about glutathione and NAC and why we need it now. My approach to medicine has always been 
having people do these expensive panels for better or worse, four or $500 panels that will paint the context of nutrient deficiencies. Now, no panel is perfect and every panel doesn't have enough, but it's a piece that I get to look at and, and there are some labs I can do by basic serum as well that are okay, usually not useful because you want to get intracellular. That's where the nutrients need to get to to cause the positive action and who's deficient at that level. So by looking at the context of deficiencies, which has clearly grown over the last 60 or 70 years, hellaciously, hellaciously, it's not just a little increase. And the reasons are that, that I don't want you to get depressed about are, yes, environmental toxins, uh, emotional stresses in our lives that I believe are probably greater in a certain way, and lack of physical activity for many of us. You know, we have office jobs, and we'll get into that. So I want to repeat some things that I said on the YouTube, but this is the context in which I have always come through in medicine. It's like, okay, we're going to do this panel. We're going to look at a hormone panel. We're going to look at your genetic or genomic predisposition. So I get to address those things. But those things have to fit with the story that I'm getting from the patient in front of me, right? I'm not going to slap them on with these different things if it's irrelevant to their story, their chief complaint, the reason they're seeing me. We might have a, a moderate, a mild conversation about some of these things, but I'm not going to go, hey, you go take this, even though you are not complaining about these things and you have no reason to. Right. Okay. Um, I am just going to go through the tiles some of some really pretty interesting studies, and we're not going to get too much into it, of how these things have become applied to what we're talking about. And it's pretty remar remarkable. So let's just start with the top one. Here's one that I, when I do my podcast, I must have to read about a hundred um, YouTubes primarily. Uh, a hundred or so studies, and then you go back and see if you can get the actual study to see what the actual information was and not so much just the abstract. And it gets pretty tedious, but pretty cool things come up, by the way, that I often don't have the time to really bring into the topic at hand. So here's a title. This is from 2020. So this is new, 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 new. So ketogenic diet combined with antioxidant and acetylcysteine. NAC inhibits tumor growth in mouse model of anaplastic thyroid cancer. We can just generalize that. And we know that the ketogenic diet is being used for cancer. We've talked to Tom Siegfried about that. And he was working with mice in particular. So now what they did is they added an antioxidant. So we had the ketogenic diet. And this is real pretty basic stuff. These are just two variables. Ketogenic diet, which you can measure, right? You can measure by ketones. And you can measure the amount of protein they're having, the measure of fat they're having, how many calories they're having. So it's all pretty mechanical, the things that you can measure. And um, all I can say, it must be a wicked small needle to get the blood out of a, a mouse. But the conclusion of that is the combination of a ketogenic diet or glucose restriction, which is obviously what the ketogenic diet does, think of epilepsy and so on, with the antioxidant NAC significantly reduced tumor growth in vivo and in vitro. So in other words, with actual mice in, in, um, in their in their cages and in vitro uh, Petri dish against the cancer cells. Pretty amazing, huh? So that's just barely two years ago, not even two years ago. Let's go to the next one. I have uh, basically the 
regulation of glucose, uh, glutathione synthesis, which is, comes down to three pieces, glutamine, cysteine, and glycine. And the interesting thing is that the rate limiting step, these are for healthy people. These are not people that have a mutation that make them exceptionally ill because you know they were they they had this inborn error of metabolism and it made a problem. We're talking about your friends, my friends, your family, my family. For the most part, we all have our issues, but we're vital enough. So that cysteine is the rate limiting step in making glutathione. Glutamine is the most abundant amino acid in your body. Cysteine is the least abundant amino acid in the cell, which is where glutathione comes together. And glycine is in everything. Glycine are, is an amoeba. Glycine, they've found in meteorites that have hit the earth, unmelted, if you will. So they call them chondrites. And they were too small, so they didn't burn up and all get made into molten, whatever it is. And so they could examine it. And the most common amino acid they found, they didn't find lots of amino acids, but they found more than one, was glycine. And glycine is in every little thing, be it plant, fungal, or animal. So it's amazing. So they basically, it's also the simplest. It's one carbon. And uh, is considered the beginning of life, hypothetically, where all the other amino acids are combinations from this. This is the beginning one. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Okay, on to the next one. This is, okay, micro, micronutrients may be a unique weapon against neurotoxic triad of excitotoxicity. Think of glutamate over GABA, right? Your the hyperactive attention disorder, um, anybody on the spectrum from autism to Asperger's to dyslexia like me. Um, so the triad of ec excitotoxicity, oxidative stress, neuroinflammation. And so this is right on. This was 20, 2021. I talk about how new this is in September 2021. This is fresh off the press. And I'm reading it. It's from Frontiers in Science. I'm getting it out of PubMed. And so the conclusion there is, uh, if I can get to it, simple conclusion, uh, basically says that excitotoxicity has been implicated in many neurological disorders, some of which I just named. You could also say MS, ALS, uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Uh, and is leading cause of oxidative stress and neuroinflammation in the nervous system. Most of the research to date has focused on each of these conditions individually. However, excitotoxicity, oxidative stress, neuroinflammation have the ability to influence one another in a self-sustaining manner. Consider it a fire that's getting bigger and bigger. So anyway, they're now looking at, through frontiers in science, deciding to look at certain deficiencies and seeing if certain vitamins and nutrient deficiencies have added to the resultant inflammation. And I would say, of course that has. But anyway, the fact is, this is a topic now. And they are specifically looking at um, neurological disorders in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, migraines, chronic pain, psychiatric conditions. We've talked about that before. So pretty interesting. Um, it can go on and on and on about that. Uh, it opens a door to common sense, if you ask me. Um, let's see here. We have impaired synthesis and antioxidant defenses of glutathione in the cerebellum. That's the back of your head. 
of autistic subjects, alterations in the activities and protein expressions of glutathione-related enzymes. So remember last week, we cited a number of studies, and one was done back actually in 1929. It was published in 1935, I believe it was, and it measured the lactic acid in the prefrontal cortex of schizophrenics and bipolar. And basically, it said that they had nearly no uh, glutathione. They're very high on the the in, the um, lactic acid, which are kind of the indicating they're low on glutathione. And so now we're into looking more or less the same thing in other aspects, the deficiency of glutathione in other parts of the brain and in other conditions. And okay, oral supplementation with liposomal glutathione elevates body stores. This is one of the new supplements, new not in as of this year, but new as of the last, oh, I'd say uh, under 10 years anyway. So how that's much more effective. And what's interesting when you're on PubMed, when you read a article like this, let's see what the conclusion says. Conclusion says, collectively, these preliminary findings support the effectiveness of liposomal. So when you see a study like this, you try to go to the top and saying, so where is this, what is the conflict of interest? And you click the author information and there is no conflict of interest. It's came out of Penn State and um, completely out of Penn State, which is pretty neat. So you go to the section on the right that says cited by other articles. So that's, they, they thought this was so important, they included it in their study. And their study goes on to glutathione supplementation, antioxidant activity. So glutathione, I'm hoping you all know, because I've said it before, is the ultimate antioxidant in the body. And I say this in a couple of ways. So I came up through the naturopathic medical education, and it was all about antioxidants, how plants are very antioxidants, some are better than others. There was even this thing called the ORAC score, if you can kind of remember that. But basically, all those antioxidants didn't help that much. So having a lot of antioxidants in your diet didn't show any real dramatic change. However, giving glutathione, which is kind of like manhandling, giving the big cannon of antioxidants into the body, whether it's by NAC or IV infusion of glutathione and or NAC and, and other supplements now, it made a big difference. It is a big thing. And I'm going to get into why later, but other than deficiency, so you're getting the deficiency background, of course, deficiency, this is a way of making a dam so the deficiencies don't become this sort of combined inflammation fire that builds chronic diseases to make the last 30 or 40 years of life terrible. So by having enough antioxidants, we can hold back the wall, the, the dam of chronic illnesses, and ideally be working at a nutritious diet. And when I say nutritious diet, it's not just name those things are nutritious, but it's coach the person into having a nutritious diet, test them repeatedly to see if they are getting the nutrients that you're espousing that they should get by eating your way. You know that I'm big into protein sparing modified fast and a, a kind of a fatty version of that and for my off days, but I'm all about having very nutrient-dense foods. They be are liver, and they be and are, I'm speaking incorrectly on purpose, uh, egg yolks. And yes, you can say, well, egg yolks are high in omega-6, but they're a natural source. So I don't go nuts with that. I just have them in my diet. That rounds out my 
more whole food sources of protein throughout the week. So within those two, that's really all I need to make my life go around. Uh, is that all I ever have? No. Um, I think I stray because I do like my wine. And so, yeah, that could be a good thing not to do. And if I wanted to be healthier. I'm doing okay. But we all have a list that we can winnow down to make our uh, our our nutrition better. And I probably drink too much coffee. So I could call, call that down too if I wanted to make my nutrition better. So if my labs get bad in some of these aspects, both conventional labs and my more esoteric, uh, nutritional deficient labs or other panels I do, then I would think about it. I go, all right, well, yeah, it is where we're we're kind of going too far in that direction, Carl. Pull back and you know be good for a while, and then then you can go out. I hope you understand my general aspect there, but pretty interesting. So that's how you can sort of follow the thread of a good study, a glutathione metabolism and novel role in mitochondrial, of course. And retinal degeneration, of course, is a big deal. And where else can I go? All right, glutathione homeostasis is significantly altered by quercetin, which is another herb. We'll get into that next week, actually. Okay. Um, so that's the that's the end on that. Now I'd like to sort of review some of the things I covered in the video because I think I can go a little deeper here. And so when I talk about... When, when people are interested in increasing their NAC and their glutathione, in part it's fear-based, frankly. The fear that NAC is going to be taken you know, off the supplement um, market and made a prescription medication like all the other prescriptions are. And so therefore, what can they do? So that's driving the, inter the interest in increasing your NAC. Um, but um, let's just go over that. You know, NAC is... Precursor glutathione, so it increases that antioxidant. It helps with detoxification. Very specific. This is all really liver-bound, by the way. As much as we're talking about uh, your brain was, in certain conditions, was deficient, nearly all of your glutathione is made in your liver. And then it goes elsewhere, but it's that's, that's it. So if there is liver damage by diabetes, prediabetes, toxic exposure, uh, um, non-alcoholic liver, fatty liver disease, alcoholic fatty liver disease, glutathione is being depleted and it's sort of lost the battle of trying to detoxify. It's, it's just been depleted. It can't show up for work anymore. So consequently, a lot of inflammatory processes get bigger and bigger and bigger, bigger than they have to be if there was an appropriate amount of glutathione available. So you get the appropriate amount, then guess what? Some of these conditions get reversed. So it is, it is a small miracle in a bottle or in a pill or in an IV, right? Okay, it improves psychiatric disorders. We talked about that last week, but it goes in beyond that. Helps relieve symptoms of respiratory conditions, of course, um, both by breaking up the mucus, mucus and you think of cystic, vibro uh, cystic fibrosis, which is clearly a, a heavy um, mucoloid respiratory condition. Boosts brain health by regulating glutamate and replenishing glutathione. So think of GABA is the opposite of glutamate. Glutamate's the excitotoxic uh, neurotransmitter of HDHD um, and autism and so on. Now you balance that, it's like meditating. So GABA is the meditation. When you meditate, your GABA goes up and your glutamate goes down. And this helps direct that. It helps infertility in men and women, 
most famously polycystic ovarian syndrome in women, stabilizes blood sugar by decreasing inflammation. Kind of what I just said about the liver, a little bit different. Uh, reduces heart disease, this is a big deal. Um, there again, we're talking about a concentrated area in the body of mitochondria. It helps mitochondrial inflammation for sure. Ability to boost glutathione levels may improve immune function. Okay, so in order for, I mentioned that uh, cysteine was a rate-limiting step, right? You had three amino acids, glutamine, cysteine, glycine. Glycine is everywhere, all the time. And uh, glutamine is usually the most abundant. It's conditionally essential because with a lot of stress, meaning uh, usually physical stress, you ran a marathon, um, your glutamine gets deficient. And in fact, those who are long-term marathon runners that are probably not Kenyan, um, actually has a higher incident rates of cancer, of dying of cancer. And part of it is because they run themselves into repetitively long-term glutamine deficiency, self-induced glutamine deficiency. And that puts them at risk of glutathione deficiency, which puts them at risk for multiple cancer inflammatory conditions. So it all kind of goes together like beads on a string. Okay, so really the in order to have enough cysteine, this limiting factor here, the body needs folate, B6, and B12. Okay then, well that means people that are predisposed to not getting enough or having genomic predispositions that they can't manage it or can't methylate would be the word, their folate, their B6, or their B12, they're gonna be the first that are gonna start suffering these inflammatory processes. And so uh, they are just, uh, mutations that make them more vulnerable in the population at large. And so when you start adding some of these environmental factors that have changed over the last 50, uh, really since the mid-30s, we'll get into it in a second. So though you can't see it, genomic predisposition is a big deal. You've heard of some of these um, mutations genomically, MTHFR, MTRR, CBS. These all have to do with many of the cogs that go together to make glutathione and make neurotransmitters. Notice how the glutathione and the neurotransmitter problems go together. All right, so when we look at a panel of nutrition deficiency, it kind of lines it up like piano keys. And you go, gee, which I'm looking at one right here, a person who was in our group for um, his history of diabetes, and family history of addiction. So what do we find in terms of individual antioxidant that he's low in? Low in actually deficient in glutathione, that was easy to spot. He's borderline deficient in cysteine, these two go together, right? And you look over amino acids, he's deficient in glutamine, that goes together. Serine as well, that's a, a, a step above. And so you start putting these pieces together and you, you, you can't say this is perfect, you can't, so if I had 100 people that had exactly this particular set of deficiencies, will they all be diabetic and have family histories of of uh, addiction? Not necessarily, but the probability goes up. And the correlation of these deficiencies with those kind of disorders is really very high. Okay, and also this goes together to, if you're deficient at this level, intercellular level, you're not going to be making energy in any great way. So you're going to be pooped out. All right. Um, so the trick is, and I hate to call this a hack because it's like, I, I consider people, you know, pinning their lives together on biohacks like 
cutting in line. I don't have to wait in line like everybody else. I can just go in front of the line because I'm smarter. And there's a little bit of an arrogance in that. But when you look at these processes that have many vulnerable junctions, i.e. mutations that make them more difficult to make this a working cycle, if you will, you kind of jump to the step right before the thing is we need. So if we need glutathione, what's the step before that? And if we can give it some of the precursors or what it is. And that's pretty much how NAC came about. NAC, which is N-acetylcysteine, the rate-limiting step in making glutathione. If you can replenish that, then the only step you have between cysteine and glutathione is yet one more enzyme. And not many people have a problem with that enzyme. Some do. But there you go. So now you just all buttoned it up. And you can say, well, if you have various forms of glutathione that you can give people that actually is absorbable and usable by the body, then you've jumped right to the end. So you've given the thing that's needed. And and that's pretty remarkable. So again, to recontextualize these little insertions, these supplements, for lack of a better word, did not exist 50, 60, 70 years ago. You had to rely on food. You had to rely on step away from the stress. You're killing yourself. This is one of the ways you kill yourself with stress is by running out of glutathione. So by jumping in now, as in 2021, we can go, let's give this woman or man some glutathione and they will push back and their their systemic inflammation will drop down. If we're dealing with a particular condition, you can bet that fire will gradually go out. So it's pretty remarkable we can do this, is the point. We tend to get so numb by, oh, I'll take a supplement for that. Oh, I'll take a supplement for that. And guess what? When we're on that point, I have plenty of people that come into the program that take their supplements, and they are usually the most screwed up when I looked in, into their labs. They've been so reliant on, I don't have to eat well because I can take these supplements. I can, you know, I can eat processed foods. I can smoke I can do this, that, or the other thing because the supplements are going to make it all okay. They're going to they're detoxify me. So because there is a part of a truth, truthfulness in that comment, they're helping themselves to the extent they do that, but it's usually allowed them to abuse themselves much more than they would have otherwise. And that's kind of the net that I see. The people that are taking all these things, as, as much as they feel they're real smarty pants and really on the inside know they tend to quadruple them self-abuse. And it goes on and on, and you can spot it. You know, they have their kitchen counter full of all the stuff they have to take, and that's going to balance all the other stuff, as opposed to focusing on food first and what do you really have to take care of. Was that too preachy? Okay, and so um, I'm going to skip a lot of these diagrams because you can't see them. But I will say this, when we... If you were to go to the CDC, you know, you can actually look up, you know, rate of what they call chronic disease, diseases, and I'll name some of them in a little bit, but you can actually see a chart that goes from 35, 1935 to 2020, and back in 1935, chronic diseases in a population, systemic population of the U.S. at that time was about 7.5%. Now, you can say, well, nothing was... How could they count that many people? How would they know about all this and so on? So maybe that's true. But take it for what it's worth, 7.5%. They now measured it all the way up, and it's now 60%. That's huge. So in 1935, chronic disease and disability prevalence in the U.S. was about 7.5%. 2020, 
In 2000, it was 45%. And in 2020, it was 60%. That's huge. And so, of course, the CDC says, oh, well, it's due to tobacco use, lack of physical exercise, and excessive alcohol, and poor nutrition. And actually, that's not true. And I'm going to thank, like I did on YouTube, a guy named Jeff Noms, who had a um, blog for a couple of years, and he took it upon himself to really talk about, uh, he got into seed oils, but what he did here was put up some nice graphs, which I uh, further elaborated on, and uh, he showed by the same statistics of from NIH to CDC that actually since the mid-40s, uh, Americans are smoking a lot less, from 45% down to 14 So that didn't make sense. And Americans are exercising actually more from, and this is from the 80s to, uh, to the current. So roughly 44% to 54%. So that's an increase, not a decrease. And Americans are not having more alcohol. And he showed from, if you measure from 1960, we are actually higher. If you measure from 1985, according to the CDC, we are actually lower. And the last thing is Americans are eating healthier. Now here's the big, you know, quotes around healthier because the Health Eating Index, HEI, in case you never knew it existed, measures how the nation's food choices align with the USDA's dietary guidelines. And they say, hey, they're doing pretty well. From the 90s to uh, 2020, it's increased by over 10%. Well, we've already talked about, so the nutritional guidelines are have more poly unsaturated fats in your diet and reduce your saturated fats to get your cholesterol down and your cholesterol will go down and life will be better. Well, part one was true. You do that and your cholesterol will go down. Part two is you will get more inflamed and more chronic conditions. Absolutely. That's a guarantee. That, that will happen on anybody. Okay. So um, why bother thinking about any of these things? Because chronic diseases, some of which are heart disease, cancer, chronic lung disease, stroke, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, chronic uh, kidney disease, to name a few. We can go on to more neurological, but you got the gist, right? Okay. Cancer rates have not decreased. So this is a graph basically from the 1990s. It could have gone back to the 1960s, but the cancer rates of the population at large have increased by from roughly about 4% to about 5.5%. So with all our high tech and all these other things and the chemotherapies, how hasn't this changed? How has this gotten worse? With all our best healthcare in the world, baloney, um, we have good healthcare. We have best healthcare for very few people in this country. We have mediocre to poor healthcare for most of us. I'm hoping the truthfulness will be okay with you all. Okay, um, I actually went to, on the YouTube, went to the CDC and looked at, they had mapped out, they had interactive maps, and so you can see how the rates of cancer went up on different age groups and different kinds of cancers, and uh, it's very impressive. So it made that point a little more rare, but also a little more well elaborated on. Also, I want to throw in the one you probably already know about, the rates of diabetes from 75 have gone from under 10% to over 40%. Obesity rates have risen 40% in the last 20 years and have nearly quadrupled since 1975. Now, I find that I, I find that just stunning um, to reveal how old I am. So I'm just getting out of 
high school in the 70s in the mid 70s and I go and I and I can still remember what the world looked like and you know I there were not a lot of heavy people not in high school and not as adults and that's changed dramatically okay so when you compare side by side the graph of obesity which is a pretty steep climb to the graph of chronic diseases since 35 it's pretty much the same graph then you go and you know where I'm going on this American consumption of vegetable oil, steep graph, relative to the diabetes, huh, it's the same graph. So if you line all these up, the question is, if all these graphs are the same, with the same angle over the same period of time, more or less, what is the causative feature? Well, I think the um, nothing is a single cause, by the way. Nothing ever is a single cause. Now, maybe if you're in the middle of the road and you get hit by a car, that's pretty obvious that the cause of death might be you being hit by a car. But other than that sort of moment in time with a highly traumatic incident, it's never quite that simple. And so I did a other graph of comparing the omega-3. And so this is, there's a couple studies and I put studies out there just for people who want to look at that stuff, but they like seeing graphs. So I said the risk of sudden cardiac death and omega-3 blood levels and it shows the more omega-3 you have, the lower your risk is for heart attacks, sudden cardiac death. So there's another graph that actually is on a per country basis measuring omega-6, otherwise known as linoleic acid, in the blood. And so the higher the omega-6 percent of blood, these are red blood cells, by the way, that's where you measure your these fats in particular. Um, the higher they were, you had the higher heart attack rates. And so the highest country was U.S. and the lowest country was Greenland. Now, what was Greenland have over the U.S.? Well, I'm sure it's changed a lot for Greenland, unfortunately. And I think Big Macs and Kentucky Fried Chicken have probably made its way to Greenland. But prior to that, they had one heck of a lot of omega-3 in their diet on a regular basis, and they did not have heart attacks. Done and over with. Okay, so your glutathione levels are being depleted due to rising oxidative stress of your daily life, which is primarily from processed packaged foods full of seed oils. And you could say, well, what about heavy metals? What about phthalates? What about pesticides? What about all those things are true as well. But I think the biggest, as I say, it's multifactorial. The biggest one, the highest percent, the highest correlation with this is processed foods. And I know the idea of seed oils has been talked about, but and the information really is about 40 years old. Certainly, it was even preceded me in medical school by uh, Artemis Sinopoulos and others who put it together by saying, this is where you need to go. You need to change this ratio. And you've heard me talk about that before. Okay, so the goal is to increase the availability of glutathione to control your inflammation, long-term, uncontrolled, systemic Inflammation is the core of all chronic diseases and disorders. So a, a, a biohack person would be, say, would be listening to this and saying, okay, give me the thing I need to take. And that's not a bad way to go. But my only complaint about that mindset is you need to work at both pieces. You need to work at the components of your diet and you need to work at the components of making yourself what they call a hygienically good night's sleep. And these are things that take a little bit of mental focus on doing, mental focus and intellect and understanding what that means and what you need to do to make these things happen. 
Life is not perfect. It has its stresses. But if you know what is a good diet, if you know what you should do, and I know that that goalpost has been moving and it's not the same it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and clearly if you're following the U.S. dietary guidelines, you are way out the pastures. You know, if you follow those guidelines, you are not going to have a good outcome. So that's just the truthfulness, which is I'm hoping that that's why you're listening to this. Okay. So oxidative stress as a concept is actually literally measured when they go in and they measure your glutathione and your red blood cells in your liver primarily. They can put it anywhere. You know, that's why they go to the brain and this, that, they measure the ratio between oxidized, used glutathione and reduced, which is kind of the fire extinguisher. You know, it's the fireman. It's the fire extinguisher in every, every room in your house. You're loaded, you're good, you're safe. But if it's all used up, what good is a house full of empty fire extinguishers, right? That's what we're looking at, the the loaded versus unloaded fire extinguishers, the oxidized versus the reduced glutathione. The reduced glutathione is what you want to have. It gets recycled, so then you you then need to be thinking about or knowing about what you need to be recycling your glutathione as well as making more of it. Okay, so we talked about cysteine, glycine, and glutamine. Now you got that like the back of your hand. An interesting study came out of Karolinska Institute in Sweden, in Stockholm, which I think is the most prestigious uh, university for studying these kind of things, these kind of things being um, biological studies of both natural factors, medications, and so on. But this particular study this is how they think. This is They look at population-wide studies and then do a small population. So um, because this is not just NAC, but it is about cysteine in general as in your diet, they did a study uh, called Dietary Cysteine and Other Amino Acids and Stroke Incidence in Women. And so their conclusion is pretty straightforward. These findings suggest that the dietary cysteine intake may be inversely associated with the risk of stroke. So they said if they looked at 1,751 incident cases of stroke during a 10-year period. So this is not just a weekend uh, experiment. This was well thought out, carried out over a number of years, and it says dietary cysteine was inversely associated with stroke. They did all these other amino acids and so on and so forth over 10 years and 1,751 women. This is what that was. That's a strong correlation. That's huge. So as much as cysteine, by the way, is thought to not get into your blood, it gets broken down because it's a sulfur amino acid. It's actually a longer, bigger amino acid. However, they're saying, nope, the case here is those with that ate cysteine got cysteine. <laughs> And they got glutathione, apparently, as well. Okay, so the highest sources, you're not going to be surprised by this if you know me, the highest sources of cysteine come from animal sources. But to be specific, um, we kind of have a a three-way tie, if not a four-way tie, between pork chops and skirt steak and chicken breasts and tuna. I mean, they all, if you have a six-ounce chop, that's 200 times, twice as much as you need. Uh, six ounce skirt steak, twice as much as you need. Six ounces of chicken breast, twice as much as you need for the day. Um, six ounces of uh, tuna is just under two, uh, twice as much as you need. So it's about a four-way tie. 
and then it gets down into dairy products somewhat. But an egg, so the cysteine comes from the egg white, by the way. So an egg, one large egg, hopefully not caged animals, you know, a real farm chicken egg. Um, one egg is half the cysteine you need per day. So two eggs per day is going to give you all the cysteine. And since cysteine is the rate limiting step in making glutathione, you are clearly on your way, right? So that's a big deal. Okay, what else? Glutathione metabolism and its implications. This is from uh, For Health. This was a really interesting study. I'm going to give you the punchline. It uh, goes over you know, how it's made and so on and so forth. But this, this is the punchline, is that glutathione deficiency, right? So you can go in and you can measure glutathione deficiency. Having a deficiency contributes to greater oxidative stress. So let me give you an analogy. All the forest fires that are out in California and Oregon and Washington and British Columbia, you know, really on up to, well, it's by Alaska as well. It's being fried out there. Why is it being fried out there? It's because we'll call the glutathione deficiency is like the dry forest floor. It just makes for a very easy oxidative stress to come in and set the fire. So that's what glutathione deficiency. So if your diet in itself is creating glutathione deficiency, the deficiency itself lends itself to creating even greater oxidative stress. Okay, so how do you know if you have glutathione deficiency? The general signs of insufficiency are lack of energy, joint and muscle aches and pains, foggy brain cognition issues, low immunity. Low immunity means you're getting sick a lot. And poor sleep. You never really get a good night's sleep. It all kind of ends up being a an unfortunate cycle. Hardly a cycle. It's all going in the same direction. Now, for severe insufficiency, you would have anemia of low iron levels. And um, another thing along those lines is that low glutathione, which is in the red blood cell, when it gets low, they more easily break. They more easily lice. So what they call that is hemo as an iron, lytic, as in breaking anemia. So you have hemolytic anemia. It's the breaking of red blood cells due to glutathione deficiency. That's become more common. Certainly anemia has become more common. So when you see somebody's blood work, especially as they get older, because as we get older, we get less, less glutathione. Is it our ability to make it is less? Probably. Just like our ability to uh, eat enough protein becomes less. We have to actually eat more protein. So it uh, could be wear and tear. Who knows? However we get there, we have, it's more common to see people become iron deficient. Okay, uh, frequent infections goes along with immune, low immunity, seizures, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, loss of coordination, ataxia, liver disease. Of course, liver disease, right? That's the center of where glutathione is made. A heart attack and stroke. We've talked about all those in separate situations. So the diseases, another way of saying diseases associated with uh, glutathione depletion are neurodegenerative disorders, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, ALS, Frederick's ataxia, multiple sclerosis, uh, pulmonary, so you have COPD, asthma, acute respiratory distress, you have cystic fibrosis, and so on. Immune diseases, HIV, autoimmune, a lot of autoimmune. That, I left that chart out, but that should have been another chart, uh, very similar to the chronic diseases, it's autoimmune diseases over the last 70 years. Cardiovascular diseases, hyper, uh, hypertension, myocardial infarction, heart attacks, cholesterol, oxidation, chronic age-related diseases, cataracts, 
there's been a a macular degeneration. There's been a a pretty hot topic is is omega-6 excess oils and macular degeneration. And it goes along with high omega-6, you're going to have a low omega-3, but it's beyond that. High omega-6 keeps omega-3 from being effective. So that's part of it. Hearing impairment, glaucoma, liver disease, and so on. So we talked about bipolar and schizophrenia low in in um, brain glutathione. And that that study came out at the University of Texas in 2017. And here's why I wanted you to know that, because five years before that, a similar study came out in Tunisia. So in Tunisia, they basically said, wait a minute, you know, we have been studying uh, schizophrenia, schizophrenia and bipolar as well. And what we found was the impaired um, d- uh, decreased plasma levels of glutathione and the impaired antioxidant enzyme activities of schizophrenia and bipolar disease aims at um, the, the language. It shows that glutathione deficiency was associated with both of these disorders. So how do you have basically the same conclusion, put slightly different, like five years apart in two different parts of the country? Because I think they're being assaulted by the same thing. You're having native diets, native diets, whole food diets, we'll call them, uh, being replaced by processed foods. And other things. I don't know if there's been oil spills and other things like that, but it's been primarily this one. It's that systemic. It's not just in one location. So a comparison of omega-6 excesses, and I get this from uh, Artemis Sinopoulos, her list. So diseases associated with omega-6 excesses. Remember we talked about the omega panel and the 6-3 ratio are heart attack, stroke, cancer, obesity, insulin resistance, diabetes, asthma, arthritis, lupus, depression, schizophrenia, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, postpartum depression, Alzheimer's disease. So that associated with glutathione deficiency is pretty similar, but it was worded differently because it came from a different source. That was lack of energy, joint and muscle aches and pains, cognition problems, foggy brain, low immunity, poor sleep, anemia, frequent infections, seizures, neurological disorders, Parkinson's, etc., ataxia, liver disease, heart attack, and stroke. I say we have an overlap by about 100%. And so I go back to the labs and I say, it's really interesting when you look at your omega panel because the omega panel is it's a pretty small panel and it's pretty cheap to do. And you can do it through LabCorp or Quest or we talk about using Ulta Labs online. I have no interest. I don't get a penny from it. It's just that that's anybody can go get their labs done. They don't need a doctor's permission to do it. But when you get that panel, at the very bottom of the panel, it assesses your risk, you know, low, moderate, or high. So what were the high ones associated with? The high ones were consistently associated with a very high ratio of omega-6. So the ones I'm looking at specifically now are 17 to 18 to 1, 17 to 18 omega-6 to 1 unit of omega-3. And their omega-3 the ratio was tilted, but also they had little to no omega-3. So they had high omega-6, low omega-3. Consistently put them at very high risk of inflammation. That means heart attacks, stroke, all these things we've been talking about. 
So it's something that can be addressed. It's too much of a coincidence to think that they were separated. Okay. Um, so basically, the things that you can do to change this really comes down to you do supplements, you look at what you can do in your diet, and obviously lifestyle aspects of relaxation, sleep, meditation, yoga, exercise, decrease your toxic load. Big words, right? We'll get into it next week. But diet would be some of what I've already told you about. Supplements are, you know, you had liposomal, reduced glutathione, whey actually, which is a dairy product. Um, when I first went into medicine, whey was all the rage because it did raise, and it's the cysteine in the whey primarily, if you're wondering, that rose, raised, increased one's glutathione, and that was often a cancer patient remedy. Unfortunately, it does come from dairy, and uh, well, for me, I can tell you by trying this that when I have tried whey protein, even though you know it doesn't have all these other aspects of the casein shouldn't be there and so on and so forth, it still gives me plenty of plenty of problems. So for some, they can take it. For others, it's a little more problematic. Okay, some basic strategies you could do to follow to make this something that's doable and not like a, an, an unaddressable situation. You can decrease your need for glutathione. Hey, there's an idea, which means decreasing your toxic load. What are we talking about? What are the toxins that you can control your exposure about? Well, the most obvious would be alcohol. Oh, doesn't that hurt? Especially if you like wine. I that that's me. I mean, but alcohol in general put a, puts a load on your on your liver, as we've talked about, and eventually it's going to use up your glutathione and set you up for being um, assaulted by a lot of other things. Less obvious is decreasing your exposure to what they call persistent organic pollutants. Those are the pesticides on your food. It's the primary source, which are are in conventionally grown foods. Provide other antioxidants to decrease oxidative stress. One you haven't heard about is alpha-lipoic acid. Uh, think of Amanita mushroom poisoning. It's actually the one thing you can give somebody who had the wrong mushroom that would revive them and save their life. And we're going to get into this next week, by the way. So that's why I'm going quickly. Quercetin, turmeric, milk thistle. You could uh, directly get glutathione via intravenous, intranasally, nebulized. And all these things have been studied and they're all good, except that they tend to be a uh, short life, a short half-life. And so it doesn't last that, last that long. However, for instance, in ER, they that's exactly what they do. They do IV NAC and IV glutathione, and it does help a lot of situations. Um, you can do it orally. As I mentioned, liposomal and acetylglutathione are two new terms that have come about in the last decade. Acetyl is even newer. Specific nutrients to promote glutathione production, cysteine, of course, whey, I mentioned, NAC, of course. And uh, the dose for NAC really is around 1,000 milligrams a day. I consider 600 three times a day, and you can go over that. If you go over that too much, you will get heartburn. So it's not for people who have ulcers. Meditation. Those who meditate on a regular basis have been documented to have 20% higher glutathione. So I'm going to end by saying the reason you need to think about doing this is we've been assaulted by processed foods over the last 70 years. And you can say environmental toxins, though I believe it's primarily about uh, processed foods and therefore the omega-6, therefore the linoleic acid. But that uh, the health benefits of glutathione and NAC are it reduces oxidative stress. 
uh, supports detoxification, protects from environmental toxins and free radicals, promotes lean muscle mass. Didn't talk about that too much, but think about the athleticism and those who uh, stress themselves in both working out and doing extreme, not even extreme sports. I'd say a marathon is an extreme sport. And they chronically run themselves into depleted glutamine, therefore depleted glutathione. So by taking the NAC and the glutathione, you then restore these deficiencies. Encourages healthy aging. We need it more as we get older. Promotes balanced inflammatory response, of course, and modulates insulin resistance. Didn't talk much about that, but it's implied with um, cardiovascular and liver disease. Okay, till next time. I hope that was a shot in the arm. Or better yet, a glutathione IV. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldkamikin. For a brief reminder of something I completely forget to do at the end of every episode. You've heard me talk long enough in many different episodes, but what I would love you to do, and many of you have already done this, I just want to reinforce this particular behavior, which is to send me your questions. Send me your questions and anything you have about keto. If there's something that I don't know, I will look it up. And if it's something that intrigues me, I will probably make an episode Uh, a podcast about that particular topic. So what you need to do is to send me your questions at drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. So that's D-R-G-O-L-D-K-A-M-P at K-E-T-O-N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H.com. Drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Feel free to join our Facebook group, which is also ketonaturopath.com. That's been growing lately. You also have to answer a questionnaire should you choose to join. And I don't ask for your email. I ask that you follow our terms. I try to avoid uh, advertising and uh, the obvious interruptions of just a good Facebook group. So hope to see you at one place or other. Please send me your questions and uh, look forward to talking to you and getting to know you. Take care.